Hello, and welcome back to Texas Tech Health Check from Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center. I'm your host, Melissa Whitfield. Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, or ADHD, has been trending in the news and on social media. Many adults were diagnosed with ADHD over the COVID-19 pandemic, giving them answers to behavior they may not have been aware were symptoms of ADHD. Dr. Esther Schwartz, staff psychologist in the Department of Family and Community Medicine, is our guest for this episode. She explains the symptoms, testing and treatments for ADHD, and how it's not something that develops overnight. Dr. Schwartz, welcome to our podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, your expertise, and what you do at the Health Sciences Center? Sure, absolutely. I am a clinical psychologist, and I work in two clinics here. I work in family medicine as a staff psychologist, and I also work as a psychologist and executive director at Texas Tech Student Health Services, which is the primary care clinic on Tech's main campus. Well, we're happy to have you. Thank you so much. Now, our topic for today is ADHD. What are the symptoms and is it different for adults and children? Yes, absolutely. So ADHD is one of several neurodevelopmental disorders. And what that means is ADHD is something that shows up in childhood. It's not something you acquire as an adult. It's something that was sort of always there. Other neurodevelopmental disorders include um, diagnoses like autism spectrum, language disorders, learning disorders, intellectual disabilities, and things like that. And so in order to be diagnosed with ADHD, an important thing to consider is there has to be a childhood basis for the problem. So it's not spontaneous in adulthood. There's a history that extends. For most people, they can remember even around elementary school when they first hit school that issues were were present. So interestingly enough, how you diagnose ADHD, it's, it's very variable. So for kids, it could be a pediatrician, and it could be a couple of questionnaires that a parent fills out in a discussion with their doctor, and that may start a treatment. But for adults, it's a lot more complicated, probably because we have acquired a lot of history, and probably because there are other things that could potentially be interfering with our ability to be successful and effective and manage time and things like that. And so for adults, the diagnosis process ideally is a little bit more comprehensive and involved. Children too, but definitely necessary for adults. The symptoms of ADHD, so that's, it stands for Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, there are clusters of symptoms. So there's the inattention symptoms, there are the hyperactivity symptoms, and then there are the impulsivity symptoms. And the inattention symptoms have really to do with the problem with focus, distractibility, losing things, having trouble sustaining attention, having trouble listening, even when someone's speaking to you directly, kind of like tuning out. The hyperactivity is kind of what it sounds like, a lot of motor activity. Some people describe it as being driven by a motor, um, literally having problems sitting down. The impulsive stuff is also what it sounds like, having trouble delaying gratification, having to speak, even when speaking is not a good thing to do, or interrupt or intrude on other people's activities, things like that. Interestingly enough, these criteria for ADHD diagnosis are outlined in the DSM, and the criteria are the same for adults and children, meaning the language is the same, but we often 
as clinicians have to translate that language, which was written for children, to fit adults, if that makes sense. So for example, one of the criteria for impulsivity is leaving seats, climbing, running around when it's inappropriate. Like That's not going to work with an adult, right? right. With an adult, we're going to want to look at that sense of restlessness, just inner restlessness, and maybe, yes, trouble sitting down. So some of these symptoms, as they migrate from childhood to adults, we do have to translate the language. And I wish, yeah, I would love to be part of a task force that does that. Because these, the actual, the literal diagnosis don't really capture what it looks like for adults often. How much of the population has been diagnosed with ADHD? So the count of that varies quite a bit. For children, it's up to 7%, somewhere between 5 to 7% of children. For adults, it's a little bit less. It's about 4 to 5% of adults. About half the people that are diagnosed as children continue, it's actually a bit little, little bit less than half, continue to meet criteria as adults, meaning that for the majority of kids that have that diagnosis, by the time they reach adulthood, they won't meet, they won't tick every box. However, that doesn't mean that they still don't have one or two symptoms that are very, very impairing to them. So... There is like a life course in general. There's improvement um, over at least, especially the hyperactive type type symptoms. Did you see that the numbers went up during the pandemic? I did see that. Yeah, actually, I don't know if you saw this, Melissa, but there was an article that came out by, I can't remember the author's name. It was in the CDC, it was a CDC employee in March, and it was sort of a review of stimulant prescriptions over since 2016. And that first pandemic year, the 2020 to 2021 year, saw an increase in stimulant prescriptions for young adults, teenagers, and adults, in particular women. And I think kids kind of plateaued to say about the same, but yeah, there was a sharp increase for adult women in particular. Any ideas why? Well, I think we all live that reality. And we know at least in the beginning, it was pretty, pretty unstructured. So for adults with ADHD, you know, structure and expectations and schedules are a godsend. They're incredibly helpful. I think many of us found ourselves in the pandemic with not a whole lot of structure, both figuring things out professionally and making them work in the home context, but also even having family members at home and just way more more distraction. You know, there could be more or less accountability when you're at home. And so sort of more ability to get distracted and, and not notice for getting for getting distracted. So I think that could account for why there was more individuals seeking professional evaluation and treatment. How do you test for ADHD and how do you treat it? Okay, great question. So unfortunately, I have kind of a complex answer for you, Melissa. So um, as I mentioned, for children, sometimes it just means symptom inventories that a pediatrician might give or teacher reports. But the gold standard practice for a diagnosis of ADHD, right, is a comprehensive psychological evaluation. And what that means, what I mean by comprehensive is one that is multi-source. So not just the patient reporting what's happening with them, but getting the parent who might be able to provide really good childhood history or the spouse or the partner or the sister that can kind of corroborate some of that information. So multi, multi-source. And then also multimodal. So an evaluation will consist of a, a detailed clinical interview 
sort of ratings of symptoms on sort of scales and measures, right, which then will compare that individual scores against other samples or normative samples or other individuals with ADHD, and then objective testing. So those are sort of testing batteries that are designed to look at things like parts of cognition, so working memory, sustained attention, executive function, verbal fluency. So those are sort of that, that's like the testing part of it, the data part of it. And then sometimes for students, I always do academic testing because ADHD is often comorbid with a learning disorder. So I want to make sure that what we're dealing with is ADHD and not not simply distractibility in one domain because a person's having trouble with math or, or reading. And so it can be, you know, when you, when you, when I as a psychologist consider doing an evaluation, I'm balancing burdening the patient with all of this testing. It can go, you know, six to six hours for the evaluations I do, you know, being excessively burdensome also in terms of weighing that with the good information that I'm getting. That way, the reason for doing a comprehensive evaluation is when you sit down with the patient and you try to explain or account for what is getting in the way, you're not just telling them yes or no on ADHD. You're saying, well, this is what I've noticed. There's a pattern of performance across these tests that shows, you know, a relative weakness in processing speed. And so that sort of, you know, mental, the, the, the relative slowness and in taking in information that can make them more vulnerable to inattention and so on. And so if you have all that data, you're able to give someone a much more satisfying account of why they're struggling versus yes or no which is incredibly unhelpful and can be very disappointing, actually, to someone who has been like, this is going to explain it all for me. And so there are, you know, ways we have psychologists in the community that do testing, you know, so they're private practice psychologists. You can also pursue a neuropsychological evaluation, which is what I mentioned, but even more with the cognitive testing. Oh, and also with the psychological evaluation, they'll be asking about other psychiatric comorbidities, too. So they'll be accounting for how that influences someone's uh, functioning. Treatment for ADHD is medications and behavioral therapy. So kind of management of these symptoms. And like all treatments, you know, medication, just it has risks and benefits. It can be incredibly helpful, but there are also risks associated with stimulants, for example, there's side effects like not sleeping well, insomnia, and headache, and irritability, and things like that. There can be more serious risks as well if you have cardiac risk factors and things like that, or other mental illnesses too. So it's important to, you know, speak with your physician about all of that so they can make a really good choice. But it's not a one-size-fits-all. There's many, many different choices in terms of medication. The behavioral part of it, the work that you will do with a therapist will be, could be focusing on the anxiety and depression or whatever else is getting in the way, but also teaching a person how to structure their time, how to prioritize tasks, how to reduce distractibility when they sit down to work, how to deal with the self-defeating thoughts, you know, around and the overwhelm, sort of, sort of knocking out procrastination. It's like really useful skills, so, but helpful too, so. Yes. What is it like for adults who have been recently diagnosed with ADHD? Well, I mean, I think it's I think it's pretty bittersweet. I think it's mostly positive in the sense that an individual can finally have a morally neutral sort of label to kind of encompass what they've been struggling with. 
I think it's bittersweet, though, because for a lot of adults who were never treated, who were never assessed properly and treated in the past, you know, it's hard not to think about, like, missed opportunities or times when they may have been called, you know, lazy or unstable or, you know, all, all kinds of things. And it really wasn't an accurate account of what was, what was going on. So I think it's bitter, it can be bittersweet in that way. Overwhelmingly, I do a lot of this testing at the clinic I work with on campus. And I think some of the students I test have come with a childhood diagnosis and they're getting retested. But for some, they've always suspected it, but never for whatever reason pursued an evaluation. And I always say that students in particular ought to be very motivated to get tested because school's a very high demand, high stress time where we're, you know, I remember what it's like. You're like multitasking five classes and activities and a social life. And it's one of those high demand times where any effort that you made in the past to compensate for these problems really come, they start to show under that pressure. So for students, I think it's a great idea to, to seek a professional opinion if you have suspected this has been getting in the way. Plus, there's potentially a lack of structure because you're creating your own schedule. Absolutely. You bet. Especially for undergrads whose parents may have put that structure in place, but now they're free-falling. Right. So for these adults, was it possible that they weren't diagnosed with ADHD because of the presence of other comorbidities? Yes, absolutely. So I think one thing to note is that we have cultural bias in terms of who all gets tested for ADHD. So we know that African-American children and Latino children are less likely to be evaluated for ADHD. Their behaviors are much more likely to be interpreted as disruptive behavior kind of issues. And so there's underdiagnosis there, and that's just well established in in the literature. So it's having the resources, both in the school and also in the family, to be able to to notice and set a time aside to pursue this. Because it's really, I mean, sometimes it's a pediatrician discussion, but, you know, some, sometimes it's much more involved with schools and things like that. So, so I think the first thing is just like, are there resources enough to, to have the, the student tested? And then, like, as you suggested, there's ADHD is really comorbid, meaning comes with other neurodevelopmental disorders. So, for example, individuals with autism... Um, autistic individuals, about half of them also meet criteria for ADHD. With people with ADHD, there's also a higher instance or higher likelihood of having a learning disorder too. So those are sort of the other neurodevelopmental pictures that can kind of be part of what is going on with somebody. And ADHD is also comorbid frequently with some psychiatric issues like depression and anxiety. And so when you're trying to tease apart what is getting in the way, I think that's the first question that I ask is, you know, I'm not a forensic psychologist. I sort of, I think that when they're at my table, there is something that's getting in the way and they're not being successful for whatever reason. And so I sort of see it as a fact-seeking mission where we're going to put together a really good timeline of when sort of different symptoms and things started appearing on the scene to kind of get a more, as best as we can, a really good account of whether this is ADHD or whether this is concentration problems from anxiety, whether there's PTSD type issues, so there's a lot of hypervigilance and also problems with concentration, whether it's related to depression and so on. So with these diagnoses, though, it's not usually it's not one or the other. 
it's not like, hey, you got anxiety, so it's not that. It's not ADHD. The comorbidity, again, is really big. And so we know that the anxiety can accelerate the ADHD and then, and then vice versa, right? If you spend enough time feeling like you're not cutting the mustard, that's an expression, um, right? Like you're not, you're not doing as well as you, that's going to lead to anxiety, and enough anxiety, you're going to have depression and, and vice versa in a million different loops. And so I think the experience of adults who are, are, who are diagnosed later in life is bittersweet. It's also relief. And it's also like, oh, okay, that's why I'm chronically stressed. That makes a lot of sense. <laughs> As with many diagnoses that aren't easily visible on the outside, some of us might dismiss ADHD in someone else as a personal issue or a lack of discipline, some sort of judgment. Or someone who might fidget a lot once in a while might joke that they have ADHD. Why is that type of language harmful to someone with ADHD, diagnosed or not? Yeah, yeah, that happens a lot. Um, yeah. Not just with ADHD, but other, other, other labels, right? Psychiatric mental health labels. I mean, it's harmful because it really minimizes somebody's experience. Right. And I mean, I kind of try to think of counterattacks to that type of attitude. And while there isn't a single blood test or MRI or like we haven't located it exactly here in the brain or here in the genetic sequence, ADHD is highly heritable. It's about somewhere between 70 and 80 percent um, heritability, which means that um, in terms of all the variation in the population, at least 76% of that variance could be accounted for by genetics. So strongly genetic. I think that's kind of an ev sort of evidence. And then there's also studies like in the brain, like the prefrontal cortex and the striatum, and even they try to isolate, do some gene isolating with dopamine. Dopamine imbalance is thought to be sort of at one of the biological kind of causes. So there is some hard evidence like that. I think, I think that's sometimes very helpful for people to understand that because it tends to destigmatize it and make it less of a choice and rather than this is biology. Right. And it's pretty dang genetic. <laughs> so, yeah. So how can we help friends or loved ones with ADHD? So I think such a really tricky question. My therapist hat goes on. I'm like, who's, who am I biased towards, right? Because if I'm biased towards the family member, I'm going to say, don't do all the work for the person, you know, keep them accountable and make sure that they're pulling their weight and, and all of that kind of sense that's really good. If I'm sort of advocating for the position of my patient, I'm going to argue for a lot of compassion towards the person with ADHD, keeping in mind that this is not a character flaw, it's not a moral flaw, that it's a kind of challenge in self-control. So I talked about criteria, but if you guys want the nutshell version of it, yes, ADHD is like an issue of control, of native control, native meaning coming from me. And that control means my attention, like where I put my attention, but it could also mean like what I'm doing with myself during that time. And so it's so self-control and it's self-management. And so in adults, you know, that's why it looks like being late, having trouble keeping time, struggling with deadlines, and, and things like that. So yes, how can they help? They can, uh, loved ones can encourage the person to get some support. So 
if they're not already, if they haven't initiated a medication treatment, medication is actually the first line treatment for ADHD. So to consider pursuing that. Um, and there's lots of different kinds of classes of medicines that could be helpful for ADHD. That's one. And then also seek the help of a therapist, a behaviorally oriented therapist who can help, help with all that management stuff. Because medications can help you sustain focus and they can reduce your distractibility and your hyperactivity some, but you still need to learn the tools to be able to organize yourself and be effective and follow through. So urge them to get help, professional help. Is there anything else you'd like to add? I do want to say one thing, which is we've, I've been myself framing the ADHD as a, as a problem, as a deficit. And I also want to say that the diagnosis is a double-edged sword. There are some benefits from having less native control. So for example, Someone with ADHD, maybe your team member who's like shooting off those great ideas, right? She's got the great ideas. And if you ask for help, she's like, I'm there. She's bringing the energy, the passion. She's not overthinking it. She's there. So I think people with ADHD can be energetic, courageous, creative, outside of the box. And remember what I just said about self-control, right? Yes. That can also mean when I get into something and focused, that sort of phenomenon of hyper-focus, I can focus for hours on a project if it is interesting to me, right? And so I think, and youthful, I mean, people with ADHD, I don't know if I have science to back this up, but in my, in my work with them, I mean, they're, they're just, the energy is, is, is fantastic. So yeah, I think it's, you can, you know, hopefully come to a place where you can see that number one, it's not, it doesn't define me fully. I'm still my own person. This is like an, but there's some, some phenomena, some behaviors I can associate with ADHD, but also there's a positive aspect to it as well in terms of that creativity and the passion and all of that. Well, thank you so much for coming on our podcast and helping us understand ADHD. Oh, you're so welcome. It was a pleasure to be, it went to, if I'm by too short, Melissa. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to Texas Tech Health Check. Make sure to subscribe or follow wherever you listen to podcasts. This information is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice. Always seek immediate medical advice from your physician or your healthcare provider for questions regarding your health or medical condition. Texas Tech Health Check is brought to you by Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center and produced by Tierra Castillo, Susanna Cisneros, Mark Hendricks, Tyler White, Kay Williams, and me, Melissa Whitfield.